Hi, this is Riley Perez, the author of What is Real? The Life and Crimes of Darnell Riley. We are on the Rare Bird podcast. And I'm joined today with Heidi Barnes, the author of The Bellman and The Bellman's Secret. Heidi, how are you? Great. How are you, Riley? Doing pretty good. Good. I want to jump right into The Bellman's Secret, the addition to The Bellman where we catch up with Stan Douglas. <laughs> oh. How hard was it for you to continue Stan Douglas and his bumbling antics? <laughs> well, it was quite easy because once you build the characters and the atmosphere, uh, the environment, it, it, you just get have more fun playing with the characters and you release some characters in the second book and you bring new ones in. And so I had a lot of fun with it. I have a, a, tr a love triangle going on in the second book where Stanley tries to keep his girl. And I bring in, it really has an international flair because I moved around the world. So I had, you know, someone from New Zealand, Singapore, Saudi coming in. I also have the Teamster heads who visit, have a conference there because I actually did used to visit there and have, have a conference uh, uh, yearly in the summer. So I just had a, a lot of fun in this crazy environment because, of course, you can go anywhere <laughs> with it. So you say you have all this international flair and the Teamsters. So, if I'm correct, you worked in your father's hotel? Right. On? The Bellman and the Bellman Secret is based on my family's home, summer home, turned into an inn. So, I ran it for my parents for seven years after university. Very cool. Yeah. And in that time, did you actually have interaction with the Teamsters and underworld figures? Well, I did... Uh, the Teamsters having come up there yearly, I had interaction with them. And then previously to that, and so that I want to hear your stories about your experiences with the mob and all. But I'll tell you, I'll share what I have with my experiences first. My senior year of high school, my father had taken on a job. He was a commercial developer. So he had taken on a job with a penthouse hotel and casino uh, in Atlantic City, Bob Guccione was the founder of that. And just to preface this, my father was squeaky clean. You know, 25 years in the Navy, sub-commander, legions of merit were pinned on him. But he took this job, so it was a different world. And at that time, he arranged an internship for me at the in-house advertising agency for Penthouse. And that was the time Caligula came out or was about to come out. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> I remember it fondly, yes. Well, I didn't see it and I wasn't allowed to see it. And trust me, I didn't want to see it. So my father introduced me to different people that he interacted with because in those days, if you have gambling, you have organized crime. So he introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Chuck Anderson. And Chuck Anderson lived across the street from the plaza, on the side of the plaza. And it was supposedly Frank Sinatra's old apartment. And he ran the 21 Club for nearly 30 years, or he was the greeter there. And later he went on to manage a restaurant called Truffles. And my father took me there one day with Chuck Anderson. And there were two or three 
men in suits, you know. So I, I was a bit twitchy because I'm going, I know, or I felt who they were involved with. So I, I quickly downed a, a double bourbon and Coke and ordered another one. And they were fine, of course, but later on, Chuck Anderson was gunned down in that restaurant. And the papers did say it was a robbery. And then I had one other experience where my sister, when Chuck Anderson was still alive, so going back in time, my father had arranged my sister to stay with Chuck and his wife in their apartment while she got settled. And one day Chuck said, I have to go get a haircut. Uh, Why don't you come with me? So my sister went along and they get to the barber and Chuck is, starts acting a little twitchy, and she, my sister can tell he's uncomfortable. And they see a gentleman getting his hair cut, so they go over and speak to him for a bit. And then Chuck says, you know what, uh, let's go, I'll get my hair cut another time. So they leave, and my sister said, what a nice gentleman. And Chuck said, no, he's not. That's Jimmy the Weasel. And Jimmy the Weasel was one of the biggest hitmen at the time and an L.A. crime boss. And the reason Chuck wanted to leave is because he knew that there was a contract out on Jimmy the Weasel's um, head <laughs> at the time. So that's my experience. What's yours? I mean, you were quite closer ties, I believe. Well, it may have been Jimmy the Weasel's cousin that I know, but <laughs> it's a small world nevertheless. Um, well, you know, just how you had interaction based on your father's business connections, it's as simple as that, you know, based on family business connections and uh, taking a job in the summer with one guy. Just one of the jobs I took was with a bookie. And for for me, you know, it was learning the the gambling world uh, from the backside, from the business side rather, and doing pickups, starting with that. And as time goes on, you move up the ladder. Um, I'm, I came across plenty of Jimmy the Weasels in my day, and I'm sure they'll find their ways into uh, different stories as the years goes on. So. You have in the Bellman, in the Bellman secret, you have the, the union bosses that come in to uh, stay at the, what is this, the Maycliff Inn. Now, your family's hotel, what was the actual name? The actual the name was the Bayview. The Bayview. That was, that's a, that's a nice name. So tell me, at the Bayview, what type of characters that came through that you've taken portions of their their attitudes, their styles, their quirks, their likes, dislikes, going into the Bellman secret? Well, I don't, I, I guess the only way I can answer that is really, well, I like Stanley because he's, he is bumbling and he does see everything because he does know all the secrets in and in, um, as a Bellman does, but he has one in particular. But I like the fact he has this relationship going with Mindy and then a new one coming in and, you know, um, this love triangle going on. I I don't want to give too much away. But I just really had a lot of fun with the keeping the old characters that he that worked, but bringing in the international flair. And I think with the international flair, that's where I really tie in, because 
I wanted to bring my experiences in of having lived abroad for so long in so many places. And so there's no one person that I am, but there's bits and pieces in there. And what, what about you with yours? Because you have so many incredible characters in, in your book. And I finished it yesterday and I, I just was thrilled with it. It was, um, it was just so interesting to enter a world that I hope I'll never go into. But uh, it was fascinating. And I actually wanted it to continue. So we're, your characters, I, well, obviously were based on who you met. Right. Well, being that you skip out on any indictments in your time with Jimmy the Weasel, uh, it's it's fair to say you won't be going to uh, the big houses anytime soon. Um, Yeah, everyone that I wrote about are guys that I actually interacted with from day one of incarceration going forward. Um, You know, some... I, I finished the writing in what is real at about year number two of incarceration. Granted, I served much, many more years than that. And some of the guys that you read about, I'd see on, you know, at different institutions or I'd hear about. But for the most part, it's, it's such a, it's such an odyssey to where, you know, you, you, you see a guy on year number one, and you're on a like myself, I was on a nine year sentence, ten year sentence, excuse me, but I served nine years of it to where I see that same guy from year one. I see him on year number eight. Uh, he may not have knew how much time I had to serve. I didn't know how much time he had to serve, but nevertheless, on year number eight, I'm soon to be released, and he has another twenty years to serve. You know, the conversations we're catching up on this seven year time frame that we haven't saw each other, but I soon get to leave. He's going to be there for a while. So, you know, there's a mixed group of feelings that are involved in in, uh, how much you want to get close to a person, how much you want to know about a person's personal plight, how much of their plight that you know about that you want to, you know, take the burden on, you know, just emotionally. So the characters that I came across are, you know, are just in the situations that that unfolded, you know. I I saw some in, interesting things in 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 reading The Bellman's Secret. I'm going to throw a couple of names out there and you'll tell me if these are any sound familiar or what their actual connection is. Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Beetle's Day Off. Any of those sound familiar? Films from the eighties? Yes. <laughs> they all have John Hughes in common, and that's immediately what I thought about when I was reading The Bellman Secret. Is is John Hughes and the films that he's worked on an influence to you? Uh, no, they actually not because this was totally my experience. It started so long ago, over 25 years ago. So it was just based on everything like you, everything that I wanted to document that I, so cause I was afraid I was going to forget what it was like because I started the Bellman, the first one over 25 years ago. So I kept writing and writing, picking out, putting down. 
And that's how that process came about. But that's a good point. But that brings me to a question for you, which I find very interesting. How did you go about, because on your book launch at Diesel in Brentwood recently, which was phenomenal turnout. So you obviously have a lot of people on your side or who have stayed by your side, which is really fabulous. And you said that you wrote on pieces of paper. I'm wondering how did that work and how did you hide it? Yeah, piece of, any piece of paper I could find, any surface that was, you know, give me enough room to be able to write some type of note. Well, the basic way I would write notes to be able to refer back to with the uh, the name of the person, the situation I wanted to remember, uh, a date, and something descriptive about the the person or the situation. I'd often find the the insides of the advertisement in the magazines. Those would be good for note taking, and I put them all in an envelope that was marked legal mail. Uh, my thinking behind that was if if I was tossed in a hole or if I was separated from my property, that with my name being on it and legal mail being attached, and if it's sealed up, already stamped with my attorney's address, it would go to him and hopefully he'd be able to, you know, vouchsafe it for me until later. So that was my that was my process for many years. Uh, thankfully, I wasn't ever separated from my note taking. So when I was released, I had to stockpile and I figured out how to organize it, breaking it down year by year and figuring out which parts I want to tell. Wow. And how long did it take you once you uh, were released and had all your notes to write? It took me about a month to organize what what it, what I what had made it through. Um, I knew that I wanted to start with day one. That was to me was important because that was the day that, where I start. You know, I'm still in the clothes that I had on when I was arrested. So to still have the smell of free society on me while I'm incarcerated, uh, that was important to me to get that experience of being snatched out of circulation, free society, now being told where to go, you know, who to talk to, what what you're going to eat. Uh, I felt that the audience had to have that experience to see how you transition from you know, freely able to walk around and go into your refrigerator to leave, get in your car if you want, and now you're subject to someone else's rules. So that that was it in a nutshell. I would imagine just like your character Stan, where he's back in that the May the Maycliff once again. He's familiar with the, the surroundings and the different characters. Uh, was that the group of sisters and the mom who works in the, the Maycliff? I don't want to give too much away, but for them to be back, there's that familiarity with, you know, the world that he knew. So imagine, well, we we don't have to imagine it much, but in the original, the Bellman, when he first starts working at the Maycliff, that's like going <laughs> for him trying to figure out all the ins and outs that 
that's what it was like for me uh, from day one of incarceration. Well, it sounded like it from, but it was riveting. And so to your point, I mean, I can only imagine being snatched from society and locked up behind bars and your whole life is torn apart and everyone's taken from you. And so obviously it's a growing experience, whether, you know, you wanted it or not. Uh, but what what are your views now after prison, the old you versus the new you? I mean, that's kind of a general question, but do, do you look back and and say, well, that was the old me, this is the new me? And Yeah, well, there's the old saying, no man can do what he knows is wrong until he first convinced himself that he's right, justified and right. And I knew right from wrong. When you choose a life of crime, when you're involved in crime, when every day of your life there's a criminal element to it, whether it be the the planning, the execution, or the cover-up of a crime, uh, you're living a life of crime, you know, for lack of better words. So what's the difference? Well, first I chose not to be involved in crime. And that that goes to the most, I guess, um, I guess something that many folks may not think can be criminal. The uh, another saying, you know, watch your thoughts because they become words. Watch your words because they become actions. Actions become character. So there are many folks that may feel like they did me wrong or they made a statement or they owe me. So for me, whatever your or those individuals' thoughts are, I had to release any notion that someone owed me or that uh, in some way they wronged me. Once I cut off any association with past characters or uh, and any potential future characters that are involved in crime or characters who believe they owed me or did me wrong. I then freed myself from from the actual association, but also emotionally, mentally from having to go down these thought processes of, of how will I involve myself with them? How will I be amongst them and and not be involved with their activities? So you remove yourself from the association. You remove yourself from the desire to be amongst it. May be harder to let go than actually physically not being around them. So there was plenty of opportunities while incarcerated to be involved in crime. There's the underground drug trade in, in prison. I, I didn't participate in it. I didn't involve myself with it. So I lessened a lot of the headaches that a lot of guys find themselves in from dealing with, you know, the buying the tobacco in the black market, buying the whatever drugs that exist in there that you desire on the black market. You lessen your your exposure to characters. You lessen your exposure to the drama that comes with it. Yeah, I found that amazing, that part of it. I, I never would have uh, guessed that there would be drugs going on in, in prison. And and I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously it had to be difficult adjusting back to society. So I'm not sure what your approach exactly was other than 
obviously removing yourself from everybody that was not good in your past. But what was that first day of freedom like? Well, you know, you I was there, and so I did all the planning over the years of what that first day and the next 30, 90 days, six months would look like. And the focus was to just work. You know, as simple as that may seem, but just being around regular working folks, washing dishes in a restaurant, construction, whatever it may be, just to get back in the groove of being around, I guess, common folk. <laughs> you know, just there's there's something, I guess, pure about a nice hard day at work. Uh, granted, I had my ambition was to to be able to be a writer, to write. so. I could do that after work. I could do that, you know, before work. That's not the problem. I just, but I just wanted to get a working program going and to, you know, stay busy and with experiences, you know, being, uh, catching the, the metro to work. That's an experience in itself that I didn't have for nine years. Um, you know, being at work. Just the everyday conversation that you can have with a coworker. It was a nice experience to be having. And, uh, you know, you're building new relationships going forward. I was fortunate enough to have uh, a good group of friends that, that have companies and, you know, different ventures that I was able to go into. But nevertheless, you know, starting off as the lower guy on the totem pole. So, so from day one, it was just a matter of, actually put into action all of the the uh the projects that I had laid out and not overloading myself and not being disappointed with oh these guys aren't responding as fast as I'd like them to you know well you know everyone has their own timetable you know and just work at yours and be able to adjust and be flexible um and that was it and that's how it began wow when you think back about your accuser, how do you how do you handle that? I mean, um, well, you know, I I've put to bed that chapter of my life. You know, I I made my confessions in court. I made my confessions to myself and resolved to move forward in a, in a different manner. I haven't had interactions with him. I haven't. You know, I haven't reached out, nor has he reached out to me. He was my accuser. He was my victim. I did commit the crime against him. So however I justify me committing the crime, the stories that were brought to me uh, are put to side because I did violate his his privacy. So any thoughts I have about him, you know, Whatever private thoughts, those are mine. Whatever my my feelings towards him as a person, the person I knew, I'll have to tuck those to the side because at the end of the day, uh, I was the perpetrator. He was the victim. Right, right. And I bring that up because it's mentioned in the book about the, you mentioned the accuser in the book. And, and so... Uh, um, I thought, okay, let's go there and see see exactly what your thoughts are. That's right. He is a he was both the, the accuser and the victim. And uh, right. So the how did you deal with 
Well, there, I've got a few questions here. Well, you have lonely loneliness, which had to be a big part of your life. But the friendships, when you came out, obviously you still have a lot of friends. And those real friendships are maintained. Other ones are lost, which is always hurtful. So what are your thoughts on, on friendships or are those relationships lost and, and the ones that have stayed by your side through thick and thin? Well, there it is. You know, they're tested situations. Time situations will test uh, folks' resolve. Some may fall to the wayside at different parts. Um, some may have more, uh, I guess maybe more uh, committed at different parts of their lives. And, you know, imagine over nine years the various things that can happen in one's life in free society, you know, death, marriage birth of a child, new business ventures. So so from afar, I watched a lot of my friends' lives progress. So I had to be, uh, well, I guess one good story. While I was in the, in the county jail, still with the possibility of a life sentence, uh, one of my friends was going to come visit. And um, my friend Frankie, who I talk about in the book, and another friend of mine I was speaking with on the phone had told me, when he comes, don't even talk about the, your case. Don't even talk about your trials. Just, just, just enjoy the moment. Yeah. And for me, every visit was a, you know, an opportunity to exchange information and to, you know, pass information to go to this person, whatever it was. But my, my friend that was giving me this advice was saying, you know, imagine what you're going through and, you know, how, I guess, you know, uh, how powerless you feel. So that exists also with us in that, you know, we want to help, we want to do all sorts of things, but, you know, our hands are tied, you know. So just enjoy the visit, just enjoy the camaraderie, you know. So I actually had to, in my moment of desperation, of wanting to exchange information and get certain things done, I had to take into consideration that they were also uh, going through the situation with me. Right, right. And you, you talk about that because they, they were feeling the pain. And, and I know it sounded like it hurt you that they were you put that on to your, your loved ones and, you know, your friends. Yeah. Right. But but it sounds like, I mean, you've you've turned your life around and which is, you know, absolutely wonderful. You've cleaned everything up and, and you should feel proud for that. And and I like your line that you have in the book. It's not always what you look at. It's what you see. What's. Yeah. Did you come up well, with that? No, that's a it's an adaptation of the old saying. Um, you can look at, you can see the forest, see the trees in the forest, see the tree, the forest through the trees. You know, it's looking at a crowd of folks and finding the smile. Right. Um, you know, you look at a book and you pick out a certain word. Um, what's your focus? Where are you? Where are you putting your attention? So in looking at something, you know, what do you see? So that's that plays into the title of what is real. 
you're going to find it out at different stages of your life. You know, and for that moment, you know this to be real. You, you know what the truth is. Can the truth change? You know, that's a question that someone's asked me before. Well, if more information comes, then I guess the truth can change. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm pretty solid with, you know, it's daytime at this very moment. I'm okay with that truth. You know, if we're talking about the other side of the world, okay. We're at a different timetable at that point, you know. I want to ask a question to you about your writing process. Okay. If I may. Course. Give me a breakdown of uh, while working on the Bellman Street, the Bellman's Secret. The Bellman you began over 25 years ago, and we're now at the Bellman's Secret. So tell me, with this gap, what changed, uh, or what it was, or what is the writing style that you take in um, your timetable? You know, what's your preparation to flesh out a character? Well, this second one, because I was moving all around the world, it was very difficult with the first book, picking and having three children and animals and all sorts of things going on. It was very difficult to sit down and write that first book, just pick it up, put it down. And since I moved to L.A. a year and a half, coming up to maybe two years ago, I'm still adjusting. I still have not been able to get in a proper routine because there's just so much to do when you first move somewhere. So, again, I would pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. But, of course, it, luckily it only took me a year and a half versus half a lifetime <laughs> to, to write. But my goal is, once I get more settled is to wake up every day, work out, you know, for hour and a half, come back, write until I can't write anymore, and then go about my day. I mean, that would is what I would like in a perfect world, but I'm, I'm not quite there yet. So I just try and clear times whenever I can. And when I clear a day, I'll clear hours. You know, I want to clear at least five hours to write if possible. But I'd like to clear the whole day so you just don't have anything hanging over your head that you have to think, oh, I have to do this. Because you want to focus solely on the world in which you're entering. Right. So I'm an incessant note taker and things come at different times. So I know how you'd like to be able to go for a good five, six, seven hour stretch in writing. But throughout the day, even while at work or in transit, are you constantly note taking? If something comes to mind, I always write it down. And usually, often I'll put it in my phone or I'll write it on a piece of paper. Uh, depends where I am. But I constantly, yes, as soon as something comes to my mind, I have to write it down. I have more papers all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and you too, I assume, you said. Oh, yeah. Volumes, volumes, yeah. <laughs> well, Heidi, it has been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to the Bellman Secret so I can physically have it. I just read it on on the computer, but I want to physically have it in my hand. Stan Douglas, this new character, Riker. I won't give away too much. But, um, I mean, Stan and Riker are what has me thinking about The Breakfast Club. I mean, they're, they're characters plucked right out of there. They're pretty rich. They're, I mean, clearly, I, you could... Once once it's read, you can definitely see a Ferris Bueller's Day Off type of uh, adventure that they could easily go on. But 
they are in the Maycliffe Inn. And thank you for taking me into that world. Well, thank you, Riley. And I have to say, What is Real? The Life and Crimes of Darnell Riley is out now and where all books are sold. And it, it really is a phenomenal read. It was so insightful. And thank you for sharing your story. And, and also, you have a book signing, is it Wednesday, September 26th? Seven o'clock, I believe. Yep. The Dime? At the Dime. And I hope to see you there. Yeah, and do you want to say do you have uh, other writers with you? Is that it? Or uh, yes, I have three buddies that are writers: uh, Rob Weiss, Peter Conti, and Andy Vichella. Uh One writes for television. One writes has written novels as well as has covered biographies of other guys, and one is a graphic novelist as well as an actor. So it's it's a great experience to have buddies that are writers who respect your work. So. Looking forward to being able to be on stage and reading with these guys. Wow. Well, that, I'll, also I'll be hearing there. them read for me. Oh, I'll be there. Excellent. So we'll look for you in the crowd. <laughs> oh, great. And I was going to end on one note, too. There was somebody, because I think this applies to you as well. There was somebody, or people always say, where are you from? Where are you from? And And I can't really answer that because I've been around so many places because I'm from everywhere yet nowhere. So recently somebody said, where where are you from? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, he laughed and he said, well, it doesn't matter where you're from. It only matters where you're going. And I thought that applied to kind of us, both of us. <laughs> it's the that future, right? Moving ahead. That's uh, that's almost a, a line from um, The Adventures of uh, Wonderland with Alice. Oh, well, there <laughs> we go. We're moving on to a new world of Wonderland. So that's anyway, right. what a pleasure, Riley. Thank you for your time. And Thank you for the conversation. And I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. I'll see you next week. Have okay. a good day. You too. Bye-bye.